here's a neat little bit of symmetry to our last episode. I, in two weeks, am going to see my first concert in two years. And it just so happens to be a production that is done by the people who did American Utopia. Oh, wow. Except this show, I'm going to go, I'm going to be going to see Feist. And she's playing a series of small shows where the crowd is like 200 people. And apparently she plays it in the round. So I don't entirely know what I'm getting into. Uh, all I know is that it's new music. It's a small house. And when I found out it was American Utopia people, I got even more excited. That's awesome. And it sounds like it'll be like a fun, like kind of intimate concert. Yeah, so. yeah that's that's the crazy thing. She's playing a concert hall that holds, I'd say, 3,000 people. So the fact that the crowd is only oh, wow. 200, I was like, that's going to be really social distance. How is this working out? And I'm trying not to learn too much because I kind of want to just go in and yeah. soak it all up. I'm, I'm thinking as well that given that it's going to be my first proper concert in two years, I'm probably going to like be in tears. I know. I was going to say that sounds like it'll be a really emotional experience. Yep. Yeah, that's 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 the impression that I'm getting. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 270 of the Matinee Cast, the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, matinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Today's guest was here almost one year ago, and lordy how much has happened since then. I mean, when we last spoke, America was still counting ballots, vaccines were just being rolled out, Kyrie Irving was still playing basketball, and Taylor Swift only had one of her two records out. A lot has happened, so it seems like it's a good time to reconvene. It's time to um, celebrate being able to move around our communities again safely and and record some of the goings-on. We are across a wire to Sacramento, California for now, because if I called her again in a few weeks, I'd be calling somewhere else. Keisha Howarth is here. How are you, Keisha Howarth? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm certainly getting more and more settled by the by the week. Uh, it's it's kind of funny to have these podcasts recorded around such huge life changes. And you know, when the next time I have you on and I listen back to this episode for notes, <laughs> I'll be like, "Man, that was just a crazy time in my life. I can't believe how much more settled things are." I mean, at least that's the hope. On episode 270, we will be discussing "No Time to Die." We will be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Keisha. This is know your enemy. As stated, Keisha appeared on episode 247. I got 23 episodes in since last year. That's bananas. Um, we talked about <laughs> American Utopia. We learned on that episode that the first film she ever saw in a theater was Star Wars A New Hope, and that would be the special edition 1996 re-release, or 1997 re-release. The last film she'd seen at the time was The Killer That Stalked New York. The worst film she's ever seen is The Outlaw, starring Jane Russell. Her unseen classic or essential was The Terminator. Any luck there? Uh, still have not gotten around to go. that, but awesome. we'll get to it eventually. Yeah, I it's promise. On the list. Yep, it's <laughs> on the list. And the film she wished she made was a Busby Berksley movie called Footlight Parade. So it's time for round two. Ms. Howarth, what's a film everybody else hates, but you dig? So I don't know if like people like hate 
this movie, but when it came out, I saw like a lot of two star reviews on Letterboxd. <laughs> but uh, I mean, there's still some passionate fans out there, but I really enjoyed Eurovision Song Contest when it came out last year. Okay. I mean, it was still like in the midst of like staying at home and everything. So it was just like a fun watch. I mean, it's a Will Ferrell movie. It's a little silly. And then, of course, mixed in with Eurovision stuff, it's even more ridiculous. But I mean, the songs are catchy. I admittedly listened to the soundtrack a couple days later and was just jamming to that. Husevic should have won the Oscar, genuinely. It was the best one of the nominees. So, Because they didn't perform the songs last year. That was one of the ones that got nominated, right? Yeah. So they did perform them, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like live in the show. Right. right. Yeah. And then that one was performed in Iceland and that one, gorgeous performance. Right. Just seeing the scenery. Whereas I think the others were just like filmed like at the New Academy Museum. Yeah. yeah which yeah. is still a nice view, but it's not Iceland. Not the same. No. <laughs> Um, I, you know what? I've actually never seen it. It's because it was right there for the longest time. I never actually like jumped on it and gave it a watch. And I don't know why, because it's not like I was doing anything else when it came out. We were all locked down. I didn't have a job. Comedies are like that, right? Like comedies, either people really don't like them and they're and but if if they make you laugh, then, then it's, it's, it's pass fail, right? Like if it makes you laugh, then it works. Yeah. I was in the right mood for it. It worked for me. I think the other thing that makes that movie work, you know, if if I'm making assumptions, is Eurovision, the actual contest, is kind of absurd. Like, the pageantry yeah. of it is so over the top that, like, you know, it, it's kind of hard to spoof it. Like, a lot of that stuff actually seems yeah, like it's very true. much at home. Yeah. I mean, I only have, like, surface-level knowledge of the real Eurovision, yeah. but... I mean, like you said, it's kind of hard to like make fun of something that's already kind of over the top. Yeah. I, I didn't even know Euroversion was a thing until I got onto Twitter. That That's how sheltered it was uh, here in Canada. You're reminding me that I really need to give it a watch. So thank you for the reminder, at least. Um, conversely, <laughs> hope you enjoy it. I, I certainly, I'll give it a college try. If nothing else, I'm sure I'll enjoy the music. Um, yeah. Conversely, what is a film that everybody else digs that you don't? On the train of thought of like Will Ferrell movies, <laughs> the one that I just like could not get into was Step Brothers. Oh, okay, good. You and me are like of one mind there. Really? Okay, because yeah. I feel like everyone loves that movie, and I'm just like maybe I wasn't in the right mindset for it. I've only seen it once, like a decade ago, but mm-hmm. I was just like, this is really stupid. I'm totally with you. I. It's one of those things that I hear people like say lines or like, like, you know, quote, yeah. and, and I'll smirk, but like watching <laughs> yeah, it in the moment, I was just like, I remember sighing more than I remember laughing. Yeah. I was the same. Cause it's just like, okay, these grown men, like being, I don't know, annoying and unsure stepbrothers. I don't know. <laughs> I was just was, like not vibing with it. Yeah. It was right in the height of Will Ferrell acting like a big kid. And I I was, I grew kind of tired of it around the time that it came out. Like knowing that a lot of people really, really love it. I'm like, really? I know. I was exactly the same. I'm glad there's someone else that's not into stuff. Look at this. We should do this more. I was thinking, it's going to be more than once a year. I know. I was thinking maybe I should revisit it since I only saw it once like 10 years ago. But now I'm like, you know what? Yeah. I have other things I could watch, like the Terminator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like I am the watch it again guy. I, I think you're good. Okay. I really think you're good. 
pretty sure my review at the time of that movie was just like knives out. So uh, <laughs> I, I might even link it if, if it's halfway decently written. Um, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. I hated that movie so much. So you're, uh, you're in a good place for that. Yeah, thank you for reaffirming my opinion on that movie. My pleasure. Keisha Howarth, what is a movie that always makes you cry? Every year, It's a Wonderful Life, when I watch mm. it, like around Christmas time. I, like, I've seen it so many times now, but just like, there's like multiple scenes now that make me cry. I feel like I cry more every time I watch it, <laughs> just because I know it so well. It gets you more and more as you get older, doesn't it? Like the, the yeah. realities of what they're going through actually kind of start to sink in. Yeah, exactly. That's up there for me, for sure. Like, uh, like certainly the end, w- when things are kind of like starting to get dark. I think I, I usually yeah. get a little bit misty, like when he loses his dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even in the beginning when... Um, Mr. Gower. And then he, Mr. Gower the driver. Yes, yes, yeah. thank you. So then he goes back and he's like telling him like, oh, it was poison I couldn't give. And then like, he's like forgiving him. He's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then I'm like, Already in tears, and it's like not even <laughs> half an hour into the movie yet. I was and say, then that's, by the that's t- early, you know. I know, but then by the time Old Lang Syne like kicks in, I'm just like sobbing, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, Merry Christmas, Happy yeah. Holidays!" <laughs> yeah, I, that's actually the movie I've seen in theaters the most because I usually go and track down a screening okay. of it every Christmas, um, and for like a for like a good ten years there, I saw it every year, so I've seen it in theaters at least ten times. Um, and I'm hopeful this year that I can actually like resume that tradition, but I usually, that's usually on in my place on Christmas Eve. Yeah. That's always like for me, an annual Christmas Eve viewing, like I'll even some years might watch it. Like I'll start it around like 10 or 11. So then kind of overlaps into midnight. Ah, that's clever. I like that. That's a good idea. The apartment, by the way, is my other Christmas Eve watch every year on December 24th. I watch the apartment. The apartment, I usually try to watch around like New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah, it works for that too. But, but yeah, because so much of it takes holiday. On, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, perfect if you want to be, you know, celebrate uh, suicide <laughs> attempts. And true, true. I mean, I don't know. There's something about kind of these darker movies that kind of resonate more around the holidays. I agree. So I think that's why they've kind of become classics around that time of year. Yeah, totally. Um, in the movie of your life, who plays you? I have to go with Aubrey Plaza for this answer. I mean, I know her most from Parks and Recreation and April is kind of an interesting character. (laughs) And (laughs) Aubrey, I think is good at sort of like the deadpan delivery. And I kind of have the monotone delivery (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. own life and the pretty dry sense of humor. So I think she'd be able to convey that if there was ever any interest in making a movie of my life. So you would specifically want Aubrey Plaza as April Ludgate or like, would you want her in some Uh-oh. of her more, uh, some of her more film roles? Like I think about her in like safety, not guaranteed and Scott Pilgrim. I mean, more often than not, she's playing Aubrey Plaza, but once in a while, yeah. she kind of gives a little bit more. She's, she's yeah, really prob- talented. Yeah. Probably more, Aubrey Plaza, less April Ludgate, just because okay. April is a little extreme so, <laughs> in her sensibilities. So She was in that Christmas movie last year, Happiest Season. We actually talked about it around the same time that I had you on this show. I think it might have even been the very next episode. Um, she was one of the best parts of that movie. Like, yeah, I she was a standout. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah. I thought she was the standout. I mean, I thought Kristen Stewart's character maybe should have ended up with her, but that's that another thing. Yeah, that, that would have been amazing. Um, all right. Aubrey Plaza. I love it. I would totally see that movie. Um, good call. And last but not least, <laughs> what are you watching next? Um, last week, I was in New York for the New York Film Festival. Well, for that week of it, because it's like a 17-day film festival. One of the movies I was hoping to see there um, that played before I got there was Bergman Island. Mm. And I saw that was playing at a theater near me tomorrow. So I'll probably go hmm. check it out then. That's playing. Um, I mean, now I live around the corner from the light box here in Toronto and that is playing there. I think it started, if not, it's coming soon. And knowing that it's by Mia Hansen love whose work I really, really dig and knowing that it's like right in my neighborhood. Um, and I, like, I got a trailer for it. I saw Nomadland last week. I finally got to go see it on a big screen. Oh, that's amazing. It was it was totally worth the wait. Like I, I, you know, I've seen that movie now two or three times, and um, I've been waiting to to actually like see it with a with a proper proper like presentation, and it was so totally worth it. Uh, but along with actually getting to see the movie, I got a little trailer reel before it, and they mentioned that one of the films that's coming to Lightbox soon is Berkman Island. I didn't get to see it at TIFF. It wasn't one of the ones that showed. I did most of my TIFF digitally, so I didn't get, uh, and that was one of the ones that wasn't available. But um, yeah, you, you totally got to see it, and we got to compare notes uh, when it's done, because I, I like a lot of Mia Hansen Love's movies. Okay, so I actually haven't seen any of her movies yet, so what would you recommend of her um, The last one that I saw by her uh, was at TIFF. I want to say is that two or three years ago um that was a good one i mean a lot of people go for eden because it's got like some mm, yeah. really really great music in it obviously and that's um you know that, that's that's always a great draw i saw things to come things to come is a really um well-made movie that i that just simple little story really well shot really well presented i'd say like if you want to kind of get yourself into the the mindset of Bergman Island, um, go to Things to Come. Eden is the one that's a little bit more fun. I think Things to Come is better. Okay. So I will definitely add those to my watch list. Nice. Nice. Well, there we go. That's more about Keisha. Um, we'll, we'll do this again next year, it seems. So uh, come on, we'll learn more about her when she comes <laughs> back for a third time. But for now, we've got a big old movie to talk about. Um, we are going to tackle this movie primarily spoiler free but we will have a spoiler section towards the end of the review come on back right after this it's time to talk about james bond no time to die right after this No Time to Die is directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga. It's written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It stars Daniel Craig, Leah Sadu, Rami Malek, Lashana Lynch, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Jeffrey Wright, Anna de Armas, and Ray Fiennes. No Time to Die picks up where Spectre, the previous 007 movie, left off, with Bond 
and Madeline Swan, that's Sidhu, driving through the Italian countryside in his newly restored classic Aston Martin. When he visits the grave of his long-lost love, Vesper Lind, he is ambushed by Spectre, with Swan seemingly in on the plot. Bond leaves a lot of carnage in his wake, including the broken heart of Swan, who he leads in Italy for a life of seclusion. His seclusion, not hers. Five years <laughs> later, Bond is needed once again. It seems like both the CIA and MI6 are after the same biochemist that has been abducted. Why? Well, hard to say, but our old friend Felix Leiter, that's Jeffrey Wright, knows that Bond is only the only man for the job. What happens next is hard to sum up in 30 seconds or less, but let's just say that a woman named Nomi now has Bond's 007 designation at MI6, that Blofeld is somehow still holding sway over Spectre despite incarceration, that Madeline Swan's past has a deep connection to a lot of what's going on, and that a big bad named Latusfer Satin is bent on world domination and certainly seems to have the right tool for the job. We've known for a long time now that No Time to Die was going to be Craig's final turn as 007. It's almost hard to believe that it's been 15 years since Casino Royale, but there's a headstone in this movie that reminds us that it's been a whole decade and a half with the same man slipping on the tuxedo, which makes him the longest serving Bond of all time. Yes, really. No Time to Die is the end of an era, and that only comes around once in a very long while, meaning it's an occasion to be marked. So, pop quiz hotshot. Does this film do right by the Daniel Craig James Bond era? So, even though he was the now the longest serving James Bond, he only did five movies, and mm-hmm. with those five movies, his arc, I would say, was a little uneven, but by this fifth movie, I think it's an appropriate conclusion and kind of meets what he was set up in his previous installments and wraps up as a good goodbye to, um, I think, one of the better James Bonds. Yeah, I'm, you're right. Like, you know, time-wise, they're, they're taking a little bit longer in between these things. I don't know if it's just production has become more complicated or they want to space them out because they don't want to oversaturate things. If we're going back to like the Pierce Brosnan era, the the kind of mid nineties to early aughts, James Bond, uh, I think by the time they got to the end of that, people were kind of just fed up and that's why they decided to, to reboot it and start over. And that was back when you got a movie like every two or three years, these ones were spaced out more like every three, four kind of thing not to mm-hmm. not even taking into account the you know the pandemic delay of this <laughs> last one um but you're right so other bonds have had more titles than him but just in terms of time um he he's the guy who's had the job the longest i'm with you in that you know to answer my own question this movie does right by interlocking these stories really really well i don't think there's ever been a stretch of more than two like three tops james bond movies that were this well connected usually they're very Mm -hmm. very one-off yeah very contained yeah yeah yeah, with like you know a little wee bit of a thread going through them whether it's specter or whether it's blofeld you know back when in in his earlier incarnation or little throwaway characters like um rory cochran in those in those pierce brosnan 
Bonds, as, yeah. You know, as, as or being, you know, like Jaws, yeah, oh, in the oh, yeah, Roger Moore. Yeah, Jaws <laughs> coming back every now and then. You know, like certainly, you know, like having having Q stick around the whole time, or having Money Punny oh, stick yeah. around the whole time. Like you know, like having the team at MI6 gave you a little bit of connection, but like the adventures and the the villains, aside from Jaws, really, um, they tended to be one and done. So this sequence of five movies. I think it they're they're going to be hard pressed to do it again, but I think as far as this you know this version of Bond is concerned, he he's got like a great little legacy to him. Like if somebody wanted to sit down over the course of a weekend and watch these five movies together, it would they'd play really well together. Yeah, I like that with Daniel Craig's era, they tried actually like serializing his <laughs> story, so there was like a emotional arc with him. Because with the previous James Bonds, as we have established, they were just singular stories and um, there wasn't really character growth between them. No. Whereas there, was, you, there was no growth yeah. in Bond. <laughs> Never. But with Daniel Craig, you could see kind of his emotional um, uh-huh. growth throughout the five movies he did. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, what did you think of No Time to Die? I enjoyed it overall. I mean... Casino Royale and Skyfall, I loved those ones. Quantum of Solace is forgettable to me. I really don't remember (laughs) much of it. Um, Spectre, I actually wasn't, thought it was fine. I know a lot of people don't like that movie, but I mean, watching it at the time, like I enjoyed it enough, but I mean, it was a little bit of a step down from Skyfall. But then with No Time to Die, I think was kind of like right in the middle Mm -hmm. as far as the quality of it. So it's like Casino Royale and Skyfall and then No Time to Die and then the other two. The two, right. So I I think it's a perfect like happy medium between like the five movies. Okay, okay. That's a good good way to look at it. I I really enjoyed this movie. Um, You know, I mean, it's not the best of the bunch for sure. You know, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but it's it's kind of an epic movie, both in terms of length and just also in terms of some of its scale. It really wants to take as many of the threads of the other four movies and bring them together as it can. And that's not an easy trick to pull. Like I feel like they've been trying to do that for a while. Like Spectre really felt like it was trying to make the puzzle pieces of the previous three movies really fit together in a new way. Um, Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's not the most memorable one. Like I've, I think I've seen that one only all the way through one time. And that was the time I saw it in the theater. So, uh, you know, I haven't been compelled to go back and revisit it the way that I've watched Skyfall, like No Tomorrow, or, you know, I think even Quantum of Solace, I've seen at least three times, Um, (laughs) you know, as much as I'm I'm only okay with it. But yeah, no, this is, this is a really, really good movie. Even forget about it as Bond. It's just, it's a really good movie. Like if somebody was looking to, for like some entertainment right now, especially like something Mm -hmm. to escape. Um, they'd be they'd be well served like going and watching James Bond for three hours. Yeah, it's a great like return to that type of blockbuster. I mean, yeah. aside from like all the millions of Marvel movies that are out now. Like the thing is, is that with all of, with the properties, like this is a property, admittedly, but it's still self contained enough that somebody can just go into this movie and enjoy it. Now it does draw on Spectre a lot. But I don't think anybody's going to be completely lost the same way they would if they went to like 
the seventh Harry Potter movie or Endgame mm-hmm. or, or one of those movies, you know, like somebody could just sit down in this movie and they'd get like, they'd get the gist of what's going on if they don't get in like every single cookie crumb that, you know, they tr- it tries to pick up from Spectre. Yeah. While the Daniel Craig era overall has like a story to follow I th- mm-hmm. with James Bond, it's like the plot's kind of secondary. Yeah to the movie it's just watching this cool guy in action traveling around the world taking down bad guys yeah yeah exactly and that's what he does um what do we think of daniel craig in this movie i liked him in this movie i think it's one of his best outings as bond i i mean it's been a while since i watched his other ones so i'm not sure where it ranks with his other movies but i really liked his performance in this one it's interesting to see how the the series went really quickly towards well bond you're older now and maybe you've lost a step like if it, it seems like he got there really really quick and this movie of course advances the clock five years um i mean james almost seems sad in this movie like for a lot of it he he he's not quite his rascally self like he's not quite as quick with the jokes as he usually is there is one moment where he's <laughs> the the, fir- the first time that he goes into m's office and he's making jokes about whether or not the desk got bigger oh uh, yeah you know like th- that's that's great but the rest of the time he just he seems a lot more worn down and affected this time out and like this is even just in the way that 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 Craig is playing him. The difference with his interpretation of James Bond is that he's just like a lot more jaded because especially with like Casino Royale, like with the end and like, it's even addressed in this movie, how he's still not quite over the loss of Vesper. That's, that's what you're going to get when you set up a character to spend four movies. grieving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like throughout his whole series, he's just trying to work out his feelings while serving his majesty or her majesty's secret service. So, yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, th- this is like one of the, you know, running lines is that James Bond always serves for queen and country. And this feels like the movie and certainly the way that Craig plays it, where he is the least interested in doing that. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's more self-interested in this movie. I mean, there's a lot going on with him personally. Yeah. No kidding. The scale of this movie is, immense uh you know like bond movies tend to do that a lot they've always got one sequence that really makes the biggest use out of you know one particular locale whether it's uh you know the 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 horse race in sienna in quantum of solace or whether it's that um skyscraper shootout in skyfall i don't know if it's just because i saw this in an imax theater but yeah this movie just feels big did you get that as well or was it just i was just overwhelmed by size no i think there were like a number of sequences where it's like oh this is like a huge like action set piece like in the beginning Mm -hmm. in italy and then um later on even the car chase through norway and then leading into that forest oh yeah was like pretty incredible to watch yeah and we're like we're not even getting into the end of this movie where they're on, I mean, they're on an Island. They're not in the biggest of locations, but this one particular space that they keep on moving around. It just, it seems to just go and go and go and go. Like these characters yeah, looks like massive. so small in comparison. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy that Bond movies 
you know, 50 plus years in, keep finding ways to bring us to places in this world that can make us feel so small. Yeah. And what I like about the Bond movies is that there's, at least as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of like green screens are actually like filming on location. So it feels much more like that you're in it with them. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that they're there, but they're, they're usually handled well enough that you can't really tell, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of practical effects going on in these movies, a lot of practical driving, a lot of practical jumping. It's, it's all very old school in that way. Right. Did you have a favorite set piece in this movie? A favorite like sequence? I mean, I do like that, um, sort of opening one with, um, him like driving up the motor, driving up the stairs on the motorcycle and then, later on getting to the car with Madeline mm-hmm. and then just like that whole spin shootout with the car. That um, car goes through so much yeah. in these movies. It's, it's like there are, there are car geeks the world over that just their heart breaks every time they see that car just get riddled with bullets. Yeah. I'm not like a car geek at all, but I mean, those cars are beautiful. And so yeah. it is kind of heartbreaking to see it just like all broken by the end of the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that one is certainly up there for me. I think, um, the shootout in Cuba where Anna de Armas gets to get into the fray. Oh yes. Like yes. Wa- watching her wield that gun, watching her kick ass of the, the specter goons. Um, I mean, if I didn't know better, I'd swear that she was auditioning for a role in a future movie. Like maybe she's going to be the new Felix or something. Oh yeah. That'd be cool. That, there's an idea. Right. <laughs> Right? Let him know. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, that, I think that was my favorite set piece was the whole, the whole sequence in Cuba, both for kind of how it starts, which I don't really want to give away. It's not a spoiler or anything like that, but I don't really want to tip it off in this show, but how it starts and, and like how they have to like basically fight their way out of this black tie party. That is not what it seems. Yeah. That was a fun sequence. And, um, Anna de Armas was a standout in the movie too. I mean, I saw a lot of people talking about how they wish she was in it longer and that would have been nice. But I think that was just like a good kind of moment to breathe with this character. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she was there for the time she needed to be there and um, maybe they'll do a spinoff with her. <laughs> I mean, that that's, that's my hope. There's a lot of characters that are left standing at the end of this movie that they could turn into other movies. And I don't like, it's, it's not like MGM is drowning in properties right now. So they could, uh, <laughs> they could certainly do with the characters to use as the basis for stories. We've been kind of shining this movie and talking about how much we enjoy it, but is it my imagination or did it kind of feel like Lashana Lynch is underused? I thought so too. Cause I remember when the casting was announced, they kind of propped her up um, as being kind of a, more like a bigger role in this. Cause I mean, she's now taking on the 007 moniker. Yeah. yeah. And then she ended up really not doing a whole lot. No, no. I mean, I feel like she had more to do in captain Marvel than she had in this movie. And this movie is, you know, about an hour and change longer than that movie was. It's a shame though, because yeah, she, I mean, she gets to show off her natural accent, which is cool. She looks, you know, great in the in the um, the tech gear, and you know, when she's kind of dressed up for more for like the more formal ends of the mission, she's she's a perfect choice 
for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it just, for whatever reason, it seems to bring her in to give some dialogue, maybe shoot a few bad guys and then put her back on the bench for 45 minutes. Yeah. I, I'm hoping like, I mean, like you said, there's still a lot of characters left standing at the end of this movie. So whoever they choose as the next James Bond, I'm hoping like they have with previous installments that they bring some of these characters back and that she's one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were, I was talking about this um, in kind of like the, the, the green room end of another show, like when we were like waiting for the, the show to start and uh, one of my friends brought up Mission Impossible and how Mission Impossible became so much more interesting when it became about a team um, instead mm-hmm. of it being yeah. about Ethan Hunt. And I think that is something that the James Bond movies can do going forward is along with them being about 007, they can be about MI6. And I feel like you could inject some new life, give somebody like Lashana Lynch way more to do and, um, and tell some great stories. Yeah. I know people in general, there's like the issue with James Bond sort of being outdated in the 21st century and they have adapted it pretty well with Daniel Craig, but mm-hmm. I think with kind of refocusing on the team aspect, like you're saying could be a way to kind of progress it more as the years go on. And I mean, you know, I'd say that we probably, we both agree with that. Like in, in, in 2021, James Bond is a very, very outdated idea, Mm -hmm. you know, in every, in so many respects, like from, you know, just his cavalier attitude towards life and, and towards like violence, um, even right down to still how, you know, so much of what drives him is another female character getting fridged over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, a woman in these movies has to die and that somehow spurs Bond into resolving some crisis. Yeah, which I'm... Wait, I don't know if this is a spoiler. Or- I mean, it's no, no, it's not a spoiler. No, like none of the women die in this movie. It's very progressive of No Time to yeah. Die. That uh, that No Time to Die does not at all apply to any of the three primary. <laughs> we don't have time four. to see that on screen. Yeah, you know, we don't. We we have three hours, but we don't have time to see that. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, we're getting there a little bit, and I know that there was some talk of what Phoebe Waller-Bridge did with her uh, pass at this script and how she kind of punched it up and brought Bond into the, into the decade that we are. But it's, you know, like if somebody goes into this movie expecting Fleabag, they're going to be very disappointed because that's (laughs) not what this movie is. That would be quite a different movie. (laughs) I would love to see that movie. Um, Yeah. Interesting. All the same. Yeah. Rami Malek plays the Bond villain in this movie. I am not going to try to pronounce his name again. I um, Yeah, I don't know, re- even remember how they dude, said it. In the it, movie. it ain't no Jaws, that's for darn sure. Uh, I don't know about you, but again, kind of like the, the comments about Lashana Lynch, this sort of felt like a movie where the actual big bad was kind of being underplayed. Like we've said, the plot's not so important in a James Bond movie, but it was still, I couldn't quite understand his whole motive Mm -hmm. i mean first it was like about targeting specter 
But then yeah. it just kind of devolved into something else. Well, devolved into Pinky in the Brain, basically, is what it did, right? <laughs> he spends a long-ass time. No, I mean, he shows up right at the beginning of the movie. He's one of the first characters we meet. We don't really realize it's him, but of course it's him. Um, and then he goes away for like an hour, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's gone for a long time. And then he comes back for reasons that are never really clear besides the basic reason of control and money. Like, I guess at the end of the day with the James Bond movie, that's usually what it comes down to is some big bad wants control and money, but it's just, I don't know for, for some reason or another, especially considering how magnetic, um, Malik can be on screen and I will hear no ill talk of Rami Malik. I know he's got a lot of haters and there's been a lot of talk about a lot of things that I think has more to do with people <laughs> talking than Rami Malik. Um, I think he's underused in this movie. Yeah. He feels just kind of like a generic bond villain. Yeah. He doesn't really get a chance to elevate it any further. Yeah. And also I just want to say the, I confused by how old his character is supposed to be. Oh, no kidding. It's like he meets Madeline as a child, but he's seemingly the same age and doesn't look like they really aged him up. Nope. So I'm, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, there, there's a mask involved when he first meets Madeline, but you know, there's, there's still a body be underneath that mask and it looks about the same, same Mm -hmm. height and weight that he is when we see him later. And they did, they, they, you know, you can say that, you know, boys like kind of reach their full height and weight by whatever age, 18, age 19. Yeah. That wasn't an 18 or 19 year old who walked <laughs> at the beginning of this movie, you know, like that was a, at least a 30 something year old dude. And then when he shows up, later, right. he's still not even all that old. So I'm like, how did you come across this woman as a child? And now you're there, you know, so, so you're right. Along with the fact that they don't give him much to do. They also really mess with the timeline. He looks the same age as Madeline when they meet again. So I'm just like, how old were you when you first saw her? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, the movie's got enough other things going on that you don't really get fixated on it. But I mean, in comparison to some of the other Bond villains we've seen recently, like certainly in comparison to... Javier Bardem, or certainly in comparison mm-hmm. to Mads Mikkelsen, Rami yes. Malek does not come away from this with a really charismatic showing. Yeah, I feel like for this movie, since it was, or it is Daniel Craig's last outing as Bond, the story is probably more focused on him and then maybe yeah. less development was on the villain and addressing his whole backstory. Maybe, but I mean, you know, if you're going to do that, then maybe don't make it a plot about trying to take over the world. I think (laughs) true. there was a small, you know, like in the first movie, he was just trying to win poker and and get some terrorist money, you know, like, why can't we just go back to that? Yeah. A guy trying to cheat at cards. Since it's Daniel Craig's last, got to go big. I guess. It really seems to have on its mind, the theme of moving on. It's, it's right there from the get-go, like when he has to go back to Vesper's grave and really let go uh, the way Madeline tells him to let go. But beyond that, like everybody who we meet and just a lot of the conversations, 
this movie seems to be fixated on telling people to let go of their shit and move forward. Yeah, I definitely got that vibe throughout the movie. I mean, they brought back Jeffrey Wright's character who we hadn't seen since Quantum of Solace, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we haven't seen him in a minute. And his conversations with other characters and even like kind of his um, dynamic with the new 007, Lashana Lynch, addressing that whole moving on and more kind of sorting out his feelings and his grief. I mean, it's it's even addressed in the way that they reassign his number, right? Like you would think that yeah. that MI6 could never do that for like how big a presence James Bond is supposed to be within this agency, that 007 would basically be retired with Bond. But it's like, no, it's just a number. You know, we're we're happy to assign it to somebody else who's equally as qualified as James Bond. And it's and in the one sense it's kind of a kind of a dick move but on the other sense it's like no this is absolutely true like you know no no badge number no uniform number no no desk should go mm-hmm. unused because a person has gone on with their life like you should be able to go on with them yeah at the end of the day it's a job and in this job in particular it's like a secret agent so it's not like well known to the world mm-hmm. i mean well known to our world obviously we all know who james bond is but mm-hmm. obviously it was kind of like a shock to him initially like having his number reassigned to someone else but we could see him sort of move on past that see the bigger picture of it yeah and i mean even at the beginning of this movie when his time with madeline is over and we can see that he's done all he can. It's kind of the second time we've seen him do this because he did this in Skyfall too. He gets away from everything, you know, like he doesn't linger around MI6 waiting for work to come up. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go find somewhere that's far away from all of this and just leave it. Like it's, it's weird that for all of the uh, very stuck in his ways ness of James Bond that, Time and again, he is quite prepared to walk away from all that and just be by himself. Yeah, half of Daniel Craig's movies here, he's retired for like a part of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird little little add-on to the James Bond legacy. Well, we have been kind of tap dancing around some spoilers of this movie that uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about on this show. Um, It's only the second James Bond movie we've ever talked about on this podcast. So we need to talk about it as complete. So I'm going to sound a spoiler gong. Now, if you have not uh, seen no time to die, you may want to turn back now and consider yourself warned. Spoilers are coming up right after this. Okay. So, as we said, this movie is the end of the Daniel Craig legacy. And not only is it the end of the Daniel Craig legacy, but it seems to be the end of James Bond. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I found that pretty damn surprising. Yeah, I was like waiting for like some like last minute trap door just like way out. But I think it's like 100% concrete that... He's gone. Yeah. They, He's not coming back. They it's it's crazy because they have they have tried to do this kind of thing before, you know, like and it but it's usually like at the beginning of the movie, that kind of thing. I I would I would have thought that with 
bond as a property at MGM that there were certain rules that you had to follow. Like you had to include this scene and you couldn't have them do that. I would have believed that one of the rules of James Bond is you can't kill him. Yeah, because he's supposed to be essentially superhuman without like the superpowers. And meanwhile, we get to the end of this movie and it's like, nope, he gone. And like (laughs) really gone too. Like we, like, you know, comic book rules, we didn't see him die, but they are all treating him like he's dead. His, you know, uh, Madeline, who uh, has his kid. So there's a neat twist as well. (laughs) Um, You know, she is treating it as though he is gone as well. Uh, I got to tip my cap. This movie's got some balls. Yeah. I mean, after like with 24 movies prior to this, I would have thought like that was a rule too. like, you can't kill off the James Bond. But I mean, those were a lot of missiles heading towards him. So I, he's he's dead. <laughs> he seems, yeah, he seems pretty dead, which I mean, I don't know where they go from here. I don't think that MGM is going to like hang up the only, basically the only property they have. They, there's been a lot of talk of who is the next 007. And, you know, they, they, I, I'm, I'd certainly watch a series of movies with Lashana Lynch in the, in the central role. I'd certainly watch movies with... Um, to Armas in the central role. There's been talk about all kinds of guys who could jump into the role as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I just, yeah, I don't know how, unless they're just going to do what they did in this movie and reassign 007 to another character. Uh, I don't know how you necessarily sell that to people who don't really know. I'm just kind of sitting here flummoxed, like not knowing what in the world they're going to, how they're going to go on next. I don't really think they should start over. Like I know it's been 15 years since they last rebooted mm-hmm. it and other, other franchises have rebooted themselves faster. They could, they could kind of go back to the beginning, but I kind of like where they're at with this group. Like I think that like turning things over to Ray Fines was a good thing. Ben Wishaw is doing mm-hmm. this thing really well, bringing Naomi Harris into it as money. Penny was a great step. So yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, flummoxed. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, all evidence to the contrary for how much I've been talking about it. But I'm I'm really just kind of thrown with the whole notion of killing James Bond. Quick question. Did you sure. stay through the credits? Was I supposed to? You mean you missed the end credits? No, I'm just kidding. There wasn't a scene. But the very last thing at the credits said James Bond will return. How? Yeah, so I'm... With, I mean, as we were saying, we want like these characters, these other characters to come back. So I don't know if that means they won't be back either if they're going to have a new James Bond. Because seeing that title was just kind of weird after watching that whole movie. Right. I mean, I know that they want to continue this franchise, obviously. It's a huge franchise. Yeah. But it was a little jarring just to see that, even though it always comes up at the end of James Bond movies. Okay. You had me, you had me puzzled there for a second because i thought it was like some sort of like a credit stinger like oh man no 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 um the movie <laughs> just already, the text yeah the movie was already three hours man what do you want from me um <laughs> yeah i mean that's the thing is that a new if they started the story over they could bring in a new m a new q a new money penny but i was just liking this group so much like yeah. I was liking Ben Wishaw and I was liking Ray Fiennes even though I you know like grew to love Judy Dench already I'm like how, how oh yeah she's awesome you know I'm like yeah Ray Fiennes is a fantastic replacement 
so yeah, James Bond will return. That's awesome. But are these characters going to like, are these actors going to return? Cause that's going to take some calibrating, you know? Yeah. I mean like Judy Dench was in the Pierce Brosnan movies too. That's true. So, and they don't like address like, Oh, you look different James. Right, <laughs> so right. I mean, maybe they'll just like kind of throw a new guy in there. Maybe. And they just don't say anything about it like they have with other movies, but it's possible. It's a little weird to kind of readjust to that. And where are we at the whole notion that James Bond had a kid? I mean, first of all, it figures. Because just in the law of average yeah. of how long this guy has been shtooping his way around the world, um, you know, it's it was bound been, to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that that movie, that this movie actually plays that into the plot. It's definitely different for James Bond to know he has at least one kid out there. (laughs) (laughs) I will say with Spectre, I didn't really buy into his relationship with Madeline. Mm. So at the beginning of this movie, I still kind of wasn't feeling it. But I think after their reunion, I could kind of like sense their relationship more and then have bringing the child in certainly helped with that and kind of just seeing where bond's feelings were. Yeah. Again, on the law of averages, this totally checks, but it does work. Like, like really listen, watching James Bond with that kid is beautiful and it's tender and it's a side of this character that we never get to see. I think mm-hmm. ever, have they ever included a kid in a Mm-mm. James Bond? No. Movie? Yeah, so watching not like this. No, no. So watching it in that respect is unique and lovely. Um, It's just it's jarring, right? Because it's not what you expect. Yeah, I'm expecting like martinis, girls, and guns. I'm not expecting you know, like when I say girls, (laughs) I don't mean children. (laughs) You know, so that, (laughs) that, 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 that took some that took some doing that was already something really unexpected. And then dropping the unexpected killing of 007 on top of it. Um, I, I mean, I walked away, this movie's left an impression, I can say that didn't happen with like, Quantum of Solace or Die Another Day yeah. or any of those movies like this is a James mm-hmm. Bond movie that I'm certainly going to remember, I got to give it that. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is almost like, um, you could compare it to how Ryan Johnson kind of turned Star Wars on its head a little with yeah. The Last Jedi. Very much like That's that. how I feel about this movie. Yeah. Which I mean, it's funny because I know there are people out there in the world who that would like send them all kinds of red flags. But in, <laughs> yes. this, in this space, that is a good sign. Um, yes. Well, yeah. So, you know, the end of this movie, um, as if it was not clear enough that we were tying off a five film sequence, the end of this, like the final shot where you're just looking at that orphaned glass, you know, of liquor, you know, like seemingly James's glass. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, we're done here. We're we're going to move on and we all probably should move on. And that's good. But um, nothing less, not even James Bond. Even though he says we have all the time in the world, just not anymore with Daniel Craig as James Bond. Exactly. <laughs> You know, it's 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 no time to die, but apparently it is time to die. Uh, there's we, a little bit of time for him. <laughs> there's always time to die. Um, we we always end our um, reviews here on the Matinee Cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you could. Keisha Howarth, what would be your souvenir from No Time to Die? 
with James Bond movies, there's like always these cool cars and gadgets and things. Yeah. I couldn't really narrow it down. So I'm just going to pick the whole sequence with Anita Armas. That was a lot of fun to watch. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, like even just like her dress is amazing. His suit is amazing. Mm -hmm. That club that they're in looks fantastic. Um, you know, what does James call it? Spectre Bunga Bunga. Um, oh, yes, yes. I was like, that's where I see Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I'm like, that's I was like, well done. Well played. Um, well, I mean, in that same vein, not quite there, but in that same vein, I would take Felix's Cuban cigar. Um, mm. I'm, not a, I'm not a big smoker of cigars or anything like that, but kind of knowing that people like Felix Leiter and James Bond picked it out. You'd know that it's a good cigar too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. But, and sadly it was unused. Exa- so. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, that's, that's find a good home with you. That, that, <laughs> that's a real tragedy in a movie full of tragedies. I, is that's a, that cigar goes unsmoked. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Uh, Keisha, what do you give no time to die on a scale of one to four? I'll give it a solid three out of four. I, yeah, like I think I'm, I'm somewhere between a three and a three and a half. Like if Skyfall is a four, this certainly isn't a four and I'm not quite sure it's even a three and a half. It might be in time, but right now I just have so many of those questions lingering, like everything from Mm -hmm. Lynch and Malik not getting used to just being so thrown at the end of this movie with where it goes that I need some time with this. So right now, yeah, it's, it's a three, it's a really like, you know, like solid three. It's, it's a really, really yeah. well hit double into the corner, but um, you know, to, to kind of go above that, I need some time with it. I'm still processing the movie. Oh, I yeah. only saw it like a few days ago, so I'm I still saw, sitting with it. Yeah. I saw it a whole week ago and it's still burning its way in for me. <laughs> um, hey people, maybe you think that we're being way too hard on this movie and that it's a modern masterpiece, or maybe you hate it. Maybe you think that we're shining it on way too much and that this property is just really run its course. Let us know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter, or I am matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of 007, No Time to Die? We are going to take a very quick break on this show. We are going to flip the record over and play the other side right after this. We're back. She's Keisha. I'm Ryan. We've been talking about No Time to Die. It's Matinee Cast 270. Uh, been talking James Bond. This is the other side. It's the point where we go a little bit further down the spiral, talk about some uh, additional viewings, some complimentary reading um, that uh, you could go on to after watching the film that we talked about at the center of the show. Uh, why don't you get us started? So when you, when you came away from uh, No Time to Die just a day or two ago, where where did your brain go? What was a movie that you thought that people should go on to after this James Bond adventure? Shortly into the movie, James has the line, we have all the time in the world, and he says it again. And at the end of the movie, the credits roll, and you hear Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World, which mm-hmm. originated in the James Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ah, uh, we so that, have the same other side. This is actually... I would say my favorite James Bond movie that's not Casino Royale or Skyfall. Wow, that is that is high praise. 
Show your work, Keisha. Well, I think for me, I mean, I love the Roger Moore James Bond movies because it's like all fun and ridiculous sometimes. But I think for me, I like my James Bond a little more emotional, which we get a lot of with Daniel Craig. And we certainly get it with this movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby's only outing as James Bond. It's funny because as I get older, I realize more and more and more that film is a living, breathing organism and movies that were once derided, um, Mm -hmm. they, they get reconsidered and things around them change and the world changes. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, this thing that we used to think was crap, it's actually really not crap. This thing is, it's actually pretty fantastic. Now I remember way back when, um, I used to have the James Bond movies on video. They came in two boxes because back then it was only like 12 movies or thereabouts and you could fit them into two reasonable size boxes, box sets. And Mm -hmm. I swear to God, my copy of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, like just collected dust because every one of my friends was like, no, that's, that's the worst one. Don't even bother with that. It's one guy. He's not like the other guys at all. But as time goes on, everybody's like, you know what? That movie is actually pretty badass. George's um, interpretation of the character is certainly not one of my favorites. I mean, um, it's kind of unfair almost to compare him with the other since he only had that one movie. I think I first watched it a few years ago. It was like around the time when I want to say Skyfall was about to come out. Right. Or maybe, yeah, one of the other Daniel Craig movies is when I around the time when I watched it. But I think it was around that time when I was really hearing more people kind of reappraise the movie because my impression before seeing it was that it was just kind of like the black sheep of the franchise. Like no one wanted to (laughs) talk about it. Yeah. So then I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it when I first watched it. And then I watched it again recently and I still enjoyed it a lot. And Diana Rigg is one of the best, if not the best Bond girl. Hell yeah. It's, Something of a singular story. The fact that it's a guy who only played Bond once, right? Like you, you, you kind of, that's a hard trick to pull. Like even Timothy Dalton got to play him twice. Um, yeah. It's, it's really, really rare to see somebody play a character like this only one time. It's much more grounded. Like you say, it's a lot more raw. It's a lot more emotional. He's still something of a charlatan, but after coming away from, whatever it was at that point, five movies or six movies of Connery playing him like a total cad. It yeah. was, it was just kind of this, it, it was a totally different direction to take him in. And now it plays so much fresher. Yeah. It's a nice refresh after the Connery movies. And then it kind of, it kind of went and reversed it and brought him back for diamonds are forever, which is kind of like, whiplash so. yeah and then he was done did you ever see um this wasn't one of my uh, other sides but i'm, I'm kind of since we're on talking about honor majesty's secret service did you ever see the documentary becoming bond about george lazenby i haven't seen that no it's, i haven't seen that yet it's really good it's really really good they get a guy who looks like him when he's younger to kind of like reenact a bunch of things and they really strike a great balance of a, a straight-up documentary and a lot of reenactments and it really contextualizes 
the everything going on around recasting James Bond. Like after somebody comes in and plays him so iconically, um, mm-hmm. when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that they've been able to get actors like Craig and like Moore, and I guess to a certain degree like Brosnan to really embody that spirit again when the first time they tried to do it it just went so very differently for them that they were like let yeah. get, that, get that last guy back in here yeah and then i wasn't it with george's case like he decided to just like exit that contract after that one movie well that, yeah instead that of com- staying on yeah that comes up in the documentary like he did it one time okay. and, and he's like no this is not for me so he basically <laughs> I don't want to say he like self-sabotaged, but he he pretty much pieced out. I think for a long time, there was like the notion that he like for, for people who were coming into it late that thought like he got fired or, or or that kind of thing. But no, it's like this guy did it one time and he decided to quit. Okay. So we both have that movie in common. What is one of your other, other side? The, the odds that we got all the same other sides are still <laughs> zero. So what, what's another movie that you think people could go on to after No Time to Die? Well, with talking about, Wanted to Armis's standout um, performance here. I would just redirect people to Knives Out again, which is where Daniel Craig was introduced to her, and apparently he liked her so much on that movie that he brought her on to No Time to Die with like only a couple months or something before wow. filming began. I did not know that. Yeah, and so you could see kind of more of that, their dynamic, obviously, in Knives Out, and then just kind of see it in a different setting. Kind of like we were talking about how Lashana Lynch is wasted. I wouldn't say that Anna de Armas is wasted. I mean, you yeah, tell me, certainly you tell, me, you tell me that she came onto this movie late, and I totally believe it, because she's got that one... It's not even really a quick scene, but she's in the movie for a short bit, and then she's gone. I totally believe that she was brought in late. Um, yeah, they're... Their relationship in Knives Out is just fantastic. That's a that's a fantastic movie, just top mm-hmm. to bottom. Um, an incredible cast. I love that they're making another one with Daniel Craig again and with Ryan Johnson. Yeah, so he's again. not done with franchises yet. <laughs> oh no. Oh no, no. He needs paychecks, you know. He's um, gotta make sure Rachel Weiss is all good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> I'm loving what we're seeing out of out of Anna de Armas. I'm sure she's done more stuff that I've seen. Like she was, I want to say she was in that Blade Runner remake as well, wasn't it? Oh like yeah, she, that's she yeah. I think Joy. that's where I first saw her. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, she's really talented. Um, I'm I'm still catching up with with her with her film. Apparently, she's in war dogs but uh i don't think you could pay me enough oh. for that oh she's gonna, <laughs> didn't see that no she's going to be i mean this might be one of those tests she's supposed to, she's in blonde that marilyn monroe yeah which i am hearing like not a lot of weird about things this. about yeah. it yeah but i'm still intrigued by it but yeah it sounds a little odd I'll give it a chance. Like, you know, like knowing that I like her is enough to kind of draw me in. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I kind of, I just kind of want her and Daniel Craig to keep making movies together for another like four or five years. I know it's too bad. She can't be in the knives out sequel. I mean, maybe she'll show up. We'll see, but yeah, I would love to see them in another, in a different type of movie. 
it'll be like a phone call off screen or something. Like she'll do like one little like cameo pickup to to help him out with the case. Yeah, hopefully she's not lying about anything though. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, really. You don't want to hear that's, that on the phone. <laughs> no, that's a, no, that's never a good sign. Um, so okay, I thought I got one more. I thought about the um, I thought about the nature of this film and how it's uh, you know a grown up spy movie with like some real weight to it. Like we're 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 well beyond the stage of like pens with lasers in them and invisible cars and that kind of thing. And we're getting into a real, yeah, we're getting into like real actual espionage and real bullets going into like real bodies. And I tried to think about other movies that were like that of that ilk. And I went back just um, a little more than 10 years to a film by a photographer actually named Anton Corbain. He's probably most well known for shooting a lot of, U two and Depeche Mode. Um, Did you see a movie with George Clooney called The American? I have not seen that one. I remember hearing about it when it came out, though. Yeah, I mean, this movie played in theaters for a hot minute. It was one of these ones that dropped like right at the end of August, beginning of September, where films that not named Zhang Ji usually go to die, and (laughs) uh, nobody saw it. This movie's fantastic. It is along with the fact that it's being handsome, which is no surprise because it's shot by a photographer. Um, it's this really quiet, thoughtful, a uh, grounded um, movie about you know kind of a, a man out of place. It's actually based on a book called *A Very Private Gentleman* by Martin Booth. Okay, um, I love this movie. I can, this is the kind of movie that I I can totally get lost in for over an hour. If I happen to pass it or if I happen to see it like on a, on a streaming service, I will totally lose an hour just watching George Clooney build and shoot guns and wander (laughs) around this gorgeous Italian town. Yeah. I can always take in more Italian scenery. That was one thing that I loved seeing in no time to die. Oh yeah. I would love to just drive around (laughs) Yeah, that's the one thing I always love about um, about the James Bond movies is they they really do an amazing job of showing off the world we live in. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's Scotland and Skyfall, whether it's the Caribbean, like he goes to in Casino Royale, and again mm-hmm. at the beginning of this movie, um, whether it's you know even there's a lot of cool stuff in Russia in Goldeneye. You know, like the, the, these. Oh movies, yeah they really do a good job of shooting in practical locations and showing off the world that we live in. Um, the American is very much like that. Like it is mostly sequestered in this Italian town for most of it. It starts off in like, you know, kind of, kind of like this one. And the, the I, I think this is another reason why I was thinking of it. Uh, no time to die starts in a very wintry setting in France. Um, the American starts yeah. in a very, very wintry setting in Sweden, and, and they're kind of similar in that way. So, okay. yeah, if you, yeah, if you've never seen The American, um, it's very quiet. So, don't try thinking that you're going to put it on and like do other things. Because um, there's a lot, there's a lot of times where people are just like working or walking or that kind of yeah. thing. They're not really talking all that much. So, it's not the kind of movie that you can like put on and mostly listen. You got to watch. But yeah. I'll definitely add that to my watch list now. Nice. Well, another one. I kind of thought of that we did mention a little um, was the latest mission impossible movie. Cause that's another espionage type of franchise. Yeah. So we're talking about mission impossible fallout from 2018. I mean, obviously not the same as James Bond, but I think it kind of complements 
the James Bond franchise. It's a more, I guess, Americanized look at kind of the spy game. And um, yeah, with Fallout specifically, um, there's a lot of emotional fallout that Ethan Hawke is dealing with with, um, in his personal life that is similarly addressed as it was in No Time to Die. True, but I mean, the cool thing about Fallout that No Time to Die doesn't do is Fallout actually dials back three whole movies. Like, Fallout goes all the way back to where we thought the franchise was going to finish, right? Like, again, not a whole lot of people saw Mission Impossible 3. Mission Impossible 3 is another movie that's actually getting reconsidered as time goes on Mm -hmm. because it was just, like, slammed at the time because of tom cruise and his persona um but now people look back at it as kind of the dawn of the team and it becomes this yeah it really was yeah and it, and it becomes this thing where his relationship with michelle monaghan comes all the way back around after spending two film installments in dry dock um along with you know along with bringing him back into the orbit of um Rebecca Ferguson in this movie as well. So they, they re- that, that's a great pairing, actually. That's another franchise. I'm curious to see where they go next with these next two sequels that they're filming at the same time. A few funny things about Mission Impossible. Like, um, I think that Tom Cruise wants to do those until he dies. Um, cause they very much, he has no time to die. <laughs> he has absolutely no time to die. Um, I think it's really, amazing to look back at the fourth one at ghost protocol and see mm-hmm. how it seemed like it wanted to set up another actor to take over and oh yeah they chickened out like You're like you know what tom cruise is still in very good shape yeah we can we can <laughs> trot him out a few times more um yeah, Fallout. I, I love that movie. It's another movie with great action, another movie that shows off the world um, really, mm-hmm. really well. Um, another movie where the team is this is this really driving force. You know, they, they get Ving Rhames back for this one. They get Simon Pegg again. Even Alec Baldwin has more to do in this one. I was surprised that they didn't find a way to bring back Jeremy Renner because – what else was he doing besides Hawkeye stuff? Um, yeah, no. Mission, the, <laughs> the Jeremy Renner app. I know, I know. Um, the uh, yeah, the Mission Impossible movies and that one in particular. That, that that they make a great companion piece to the James Bond movies. Well, there we go. That is episode two hundred seventy of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful that Keisha was able to come by. We'll probably do it again this time next year. Come on back on Monday, November first, for episode two hundred seventy-one. I think we're probably going to talk about the French Dispatch on that episode. Um, Keisha is not writing so much right now because she's neck deep in a lot of uh, personal life uh, attention, much like me last month. And now it's her turn. Uh, but if people do want to follow you on Twitter and keep up with your antics, where can they find you? You can find me at cinema cities. Very nice. And there will be a link in the show notes to this show. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in all the old familiar places, Google, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, and Apple. You can also find them in some new places. TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, Podchaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on 007 can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email 
Ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there is always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Miss Howarth? Well, if you feel comfortable, I definitely recommend seeing new movies in theaters. And if you do, please be considerate and turn off your phone. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, there were uh, some phones going off in my screening. Yeah, the dude beside me was texting. I, you know what, like my advice to people is if you're still kind of uncomfortable, just think of the times when nobody else is going. Like Sunday nights are great. If you have a weekday off, that's a really good time to see a movie because ain't nobody goes. Um, Saturday mornings, like I saw, I went and saw my showing of No Time to Die started at 1130. And I'm like, good thing because this movie's like three hours. I'll be out of here you know, and still mm-hmm. be able to do shit with my day. Um, yeah, but yeah, people, like, I know we've all been locked down for a bit, but uh, let's please remember how to behave in a movie. <laughs> yeah, you're not at home anymore. No, no. If you want to do that, go home and watch Squid Game. For Keisha, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. today.